What crowdfunding does at its very basic level is allow you to accept money from anyone for as little as £10. It's just a way of helping the business owner that doesn't have a rich uncle, basically. Welcome to Lewagon Live, where tonight we're talking to Scott Simpkin. Previously an entrepreneur himself, Scott joined Europe's leading equity crowdfunding platform, Cedars, as a campaigns associate in April 2017. Scott's role at Cedars is to work with businesses from the very beginning of their fundraising journey, helping them to undergo a successful campaign. Holding a 95% success rate, in the last year, Scott's campaigns on Cedars have raised over 10 million on the platform. Keep listening to find out more. I'm a pretty young guy. I'm actually, I'm 26. But when I started, so I've, I've worked at Cedars for nearly two years now. Um, and I started working as an entrepreneur myself. So straight out of university. Um, I've got a bit of a funny story because I initially, so I went, to, I went to university and I, for some reason, wanted to be a lawyer. Don't know why. In hindsight, that was a, dodged a massive bullet there. Um, but that didn't work out so well after I left university. So one of my friends was starting a business, asked me to join in. I've always been interested in entrepreneurism, but it was like the right time. It was like, well, I didn't have anything else to do, so I'll join. Got a bit serious. Um, ran two businesses for the case, case of, uh, you know, a year and a half. Might get into later. They were both they were both failures, but the word failures used and in a way that I don't like so much in the sense that I learned a hell of a lot from it, and I'm really glad I did it. Um, because I never would have got this job at Cedars if I hadn't. Um, and I've been working at Cedars for two years now and help. For campaigns associate basically means I help strategize fundraising rounds and help entrepreneurs raise money um, from the very beginning. And I should note part of the reason I, I did raise money for both of my businesses. So I have a fundraising experience in both B2B, B2C, B2B and B2B businesses. Uh, I did not crowdfund either of my two rounds. And I can categorically say, I actually have a good story of my second business where um, I'd actually got 70Ks worth of money committed from three different angel investors at one stage. We needed 100K. Uh, We wanted to go out for the last 30K. Um, But we really struggled to find the last 30K. It was actually a lot harder. Normally, by the way, in every single crowdfunding round, not crowdfunding round, sorry, any fundraising round I've seen, it's a lot easier to find the last amount than the than the first obviously it gets easier as the round goes on but not for us for some reason we just couldn't find that last investor um and uh we ended up going on an accelerator program which was giving us money at different terms so we took the money from the accelerator program and got rid of all the other investors but i now know from what i know two years later if we'd crowdfunded from that 70k and we'd gone to a cedars and said we've got 70k of this money we need 100 we'd ideally like 150 Let's go. I mean, you know, providing I'd be given good, the good advice, the kind of advice I, I would give an entrepreneur, yeah, I, I'd have done it and I'd have raised 150. But then again, was it the wrong decision to take the accelerator? In hindsight at the time, probably not because I learned a hell of a lot from that as well. So um, anyway, uh, so I, I didn't crowdfund, but I was in a position where I should have done. For, for those uh, in the room that maybe are new to crowdfunding, could you just explain what crowdfunding is? And I guess a little bit more about Cedars as a platform and I guess any USPs they might have. Yeah, so um, I like to explain what crowdfunding was. It's equity crowdfunding to, to, for a start. So Kickstarter and Indiegogo, they're all rewards-based platforms that give your product in exchange for the money you give. You have uh, successful companies like Funding Circle that's crowdfunding, but it's for debt, so it's loans. Um, we're equity, in case anyone didn't know this. So we're raising equity for businesses. 
Um, the way I like to explain it, because it, it, it kind of explains it for everyone, is um, if you're fundraising on your own and you're just going out to private investors, you know, to get off the mark and to get the initial funding and, and to you, you kind of got to, you know, you, you've got to it relies on you knowing rich people, basically, because you've got, you, you know, people won't commit ticket sizes for really less than 20K from most of my experience with other startups. If you're doing it privately, it's not, it's not worth the legal fees and the effort it takes to go through to sign that term sheet. Um, and what crowdfunding does at its very basic level is allow you to accept money from anyone for as little as £10. So it's basically like going from having your net from funding as wide as I know a couple of people that have 20 grand that they can spend on a startup to I literally anyone that's ever heard your idea that thinks it's good that could invest, um, which I think is the beauty of it because building up those numbers and then you, you, know, you get examples. I literally, I just closed a round today. It's only a 50K round. That's really, really tidy. Uh, they, they, they found a large investor to put it up. So it's, they've actually overfunded 61K. They've got 200 investors investing for that 61K. The validation that gives a business at that stage. And yeah, a lot of them were his mates investing a 10 or a few investors on Cedars investing 200, 300 quid. But the validation that gives a business is amazing. And yeah, I, I mean, that's why I'm a total advocate for it now, because it's just a way of not going to, you know, Helping the, the the business owner that doesn't have a rich uncle, basically, uh, that you know loves them unconditionally and puts the money in, and actually stress testing your idea in front of tens of thousands of investors on our platform, um, and uh, yeah, trying to find the money for it. Do those investors, um, obviously, from a crowd point of view, do they add any value to the business and sort of against the traditional side of things? Like maybe you have three investors that you know maybe have some expertise in the field. Like what's the value come from having, let's say, 200 investors versus three? I mean, we've had businesses that found non-execs and people that really helped on their board through the crowd funds. So they were introduced that investor through Cedars and that investors become big on the board. I've got a really, uh, it's in food and bev. So if a lot of you are kind of in development, this is not going to be so relevant, but it is a really, really cool story. Um, have any of you heard of um, Oppo ice cream? There's lots of shaking. Oh, a few, yeah. No, no. <laughs> It's, uh, it, it's, it's healthy ice cream, basically. Um, uh, and uh, they've raised three rounds with us, uh, all of which were about 150K. They actually, this is, this, is, this is the best example of how the crowd work. They had a, um, an investor put on their discussion forum, which is where investors can communicate with the company after the fundraise. Just say, I went down to my local Waitrose. They took a picture of the, of the Oppo stool and just said, look, it's hidden behind a few other ice creams. Like, is this exactly what, um, yeah, what, what it's meant to be like? And the founder responded like, no, that's not what it's meant to look like. By the way, all other investors, could you please go down to your local Waitrose and check out if this is happening? Um, guess what? <laughs> you know, they, had, they honestly had you know, tens of investors go up to their local Waitrose manager and just be like, uh, you know, the, the ice cream's not in the right place. And they're like, who are you? You work for Oppo? They're like, no, <laughs> I'm an investor. Um, but other businesses where they, they, they've been, a, I, one really nice story actually happened about six months ago. A, a business was at a trade show um, and someone comes up and goes, uh, you know, talks about the product and stuff. And he goes, oh yeah, I'm an investor on Cedars. Um, and he goes, oh, wow, you're, you're actually one of the investors in my company. That's really cool. And he goes, can I join you for the rest of the day? I'll, I'll literally, I'll help you. I'll help sell your product. And literally stood on the stand for the rest of the day selling it because all these people are financially incentivized to help you. That's the bottom line because they own equity in the business. So they're not doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. I mean, there's an element of passion in there, but 
you know, if the business improves and they add anything they can, then it, you know, they become brand ambassadors. And any business that gets 200 investors, they don't use that network, then they're, you know, one major thing of crowdfunding, they're really mucking up, in my opinion, yeah. Great. Sort of keeping in sort of like uh, the, the, what Cedars do, how would you say crowdfunding has changed in like the last five to 10 years based on the idea that, um, you know, startups and this way of funding startups is obviously becoming more and more popular. What, what's the biggest changes that happen in the crowdfunding world? So Cedars started in 2009. It was actually a project at the um, Saeed Business School, Oxford. Uh, like like a, uh, our founder, Jeff Lynn, he was uh, doing an MBA there. And he, uh, yeah, the project got a 2-2. <laughs> which is quite funny now considering the company is worth at last fundraise 43 million. Um, but um, yeah, basically he, uh, he was a lawyer and he'd done an MBA because he wanted to move in. And um, the brief history of Cedars is it took actually three years for us to fund our first business because uh, getting the regulated in order to offer startup investments to the retail crowd was, was very tough. So actually we, we only made our first, funded our first business in 2012. And Back then, it was literally for businesses that were, um, well, they couldn't get funding anywhere else. They were, it was literally a last resort. So I, I've seen the portfolio for 2012, 2013. It's not very pretty. Um, there are some not very good businesses there, to be honest. Um, a few good ones, but uh, mostly not very good ones. Uh, we're funding companies like Mike's Fancy Cheese, for example, which actually Mike's Fancy Cheese is a good business. It just has a name that sounds like it's not a good business. It's still but... called Mike's Fancy yes, it is still called Mike Fancy, Mike's Fancy Cheese. Um, anyway, they, um, that was for businesses that yeah, crowdfunding wasn't taken seriously. Basically, I can't find money anywhere else. Then in 2014-15, when uh, investors started to get more... Uh, more people took interest from an investment point of view because it was access to startups they otherwise couldn't, couldn't have. That was the golden stage for crowdfunding. Like 2015, you could literally put a business up on 0% funded and it would get 100%. Uh, uh, it, was, it was fantastic, providing it was an idea that most of the crowd can understand because these are not very well-informed investors. Um, what unfortunately has happened as a result of that is there's been a few quite high-profile failures um, I'd like to make a disclosure that most of those failures are not Cedars. We'd like to do things properly with due diligence. There are another unnamed platform you might have heard of that we're very competitive with, uh, have, have been responsible for the vast majority of those. Uh, but 20, so 2015, that's the golden era. And now I think what, what's happened is it's, it's, to be honest, it's escalated to a stage where we know investors want to invest alongside VCs and institutions. So the businesses that get the most money from, from the Cedars crowd are always businesses that are co-investing with VCs. And actually, that's interesting because these businesses would never have considered crowdfunding in 2012. And now, you know, we've, in the last year, we've done Urban Massage, Revolut, Air Sorted. I'm sure you've heard of all of them. Um, big names uh, that value the crowd and do it because they tag something along for the crowd in, in general. But investors have wised up. You can't put a, uh, any business on and get 100%. You know, you, you really need to work hard for that investment um, and you use any unfair advantage you have with your community in order to do that. So, yeah, like I said, three phases. Um, <laughs> Amazing. So probably more applicable uh, in terms of a question for the people in the room who are in maybe uh, the early stages of their businesses. When it comes to Cedars, what companies do you work with? What criteria do they uh, do they need to have for, to to be accepted? I know that's a massive that's a massive question. I think there's. Uh, I should ask the audience actually. Um, have any of you raised funds before, or are all of you like 
idea stage, MVP stage? I mean, put your hands up if you've raised funds before, basically. No? Idea MVP stage, put your hands up. Okay, vast majority, right. So I think if you're idea MVP stage, the qualifier has to be, can you explain your business to somebody in two sentences and they get it immediately? If they don't, it's going to be harder. It's not like you can't crowdfund. But if they do, that's a good start because it means you're going to get a good, uh, you know, people are going to understand the business easily. The second thing is, do you have a community? Now, at Idea MVP stage, rarely a business has a community of people that already love their product. So the Oppo example, they actually went out to a lot of people that already ate their ice cream every week. Yeah, it's quite easy because you've got people that like your product. If you're MVP, you don't have those people. So um, what I'd say is your community is always going to be people that know you. Um, If you've worked in a previous industry, you know, that's a good example. If you know people in the industry that you're working in, you know, can you go out to them and ask for money? They're the kind of people that are never going to sign a term sheet over a coffee for 20K, but they might sign a term sheet. Well, not sign a term sheet. Click click a green button saying invest on Cedars for a grand. You know, that's what you've got to think about. Um, And really, can your personal community add something to the table because the momentum your community brings will result in Cedars investors becoming interested in the business. What, what do you mean by community? Are you talking about your friends and family network? Are you talking about your business network? What's that mean? So strictly for MVP stage businesses, it's nearly always their friends, family and acquaintances, business acquaintances. Um, and social media, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so, well, social media following works as well. But again, if you're MVP stage, quite, quite a few businesses don't have much of a social media following. But if you do, again, that's, you know, it's a good one. It's people that are interested in early stage. Um, so, yeah, I, I very much mean personal network. And, and the other thing with crowdfunding that a few people make a mistake about is even with these people, I know it's online, you know, all the information's online. You can watch a video, everything. Just sending a link to someone and saying, please invest just doesn't work. You need to engage them a little more than that, you know, be it, invite them down for a coffee. I mean, the, the way you should view crowdfunding at an MVP stage is it's just a very easy way for you to pool investors under one roof that you can very easily send them to after you've got them interested during a coffee. Not, I can send my page to every email contact and LinkedIn contact I've got and I'm just going to accumulate the money. It just doesn't work like that. Um, I don't know how much of an open-ended question this is, but I'm going to ask it. Um, how much funding... Do you need to launch a tech startup generally? Like, where would be a good starting point from a financial point of view? Um, I think to answer that quantitatively in a way that's useful, don't ever fundraise unless you're uh, for more than kind of 12 months of runway, um, unless you can overfund to that. That should be your minimum target if you crowdfund, um, because you don't need more than that. I'm actually a big believer for running my own business that the less money you accept, the more creative you get with the money. Um, And and actually, you're likely to um, put yourself in a better position if you raise less. Um, So I'd say that. I mean, um, the other big problem is funny. It's probably not a big problem for this audience, particularly if a lot of you are related to the wagon and stuff. Um, A big expense at early stages for the tech, especially for tech products, like you said. Try and find ways not to pay for that tech, even if it's giving your, uh, you know, giving someone equity who can create the product. That's a big, that's a big expense that um, you know you should be wary of uh, and to avoid. I, I, I'm a big fan. If you're starting at zero, and again, no one put their hand up for seed. Don't do more than the 150k SEIS allowance for a first round, um, unless I mean, you're a, if if you're a tech product, you're a software business. You shouldn't need more than that. I, I really can't think of many examples of which you do. 
I actually do legal tech, and it's so funny. Legal tech businesses, it's crazy. They, they seem to need millions for nothing. I, I think it's because all of them are lawyers and think that money yeah. grows on trees. Um, but, but, yeah, don't be like that. Just raise your SEIS allowance. If you don't know what SEIS is, look it up. It's, I, I, I went to Italy on a, on a trip the other day, and literally I explained SEIS to a bunch of Italians, and their jaws dropped, and they were like, oh, my God, you're so lucky to have this in your country. We literally tax our investors to invest. Um, so you are in a really lucky situation if you're SEIS eligible, so do it and don't raise over your allowance. Could you say. just explain it in 10 seconds yeah. what SEIS is? Uh, so it gives investors lost relief on their investment. So it means that uh, you, if they invest £10,000, let's say, they'll get £5,000 of that money back in their next tax return. And unless you exit in the next three years, they get to keep that five grand and get cap- uh, capital gains tax off any uh, gain they make in their investment. Uh, by the way, th- this doesn't apply to like really close family so really close family are ineligible but everyone should look it up and everyone should get advanced assurance which means that if you if you can uh if you raise money the hmrc guarantee that they'll give these benefits to your investors um so good and your ability to explain scis to investors should also help you raise money too so everyone should take full advantage of our capitalist society as much as possible got it so um probably a more applicable question then is what should a tech startup um, have in place pre-funding, like before they go for finance, what, what, do, they, what do they want to show for their business at that stage? Um, again, tech startup only. I'm a big fan of um, some form of early metric that makes a difference in your business. Um, I think our investors respond quite well to, and most investors in general, uh, you know, if, let's say you're, you're an app. A lot of you might be creating apps, especially if you're at coding school. If you, if you have, you know, 4,000 downloads, that's not interesting to anyone. What is interesting to anyone is how many of those 4,000 people that downloaded use your product, got to a stage where they might pay for a service or are continuing users users of the product so you can advertise to them. Um, Repeat user base is is an incredibly important metric and you can get that off 10 people. Like, honestly, if you have 10 people and all 10 of them use your product every day, that's really powerful. That's way more powerful than 4,000 downloads. so, in terms, so those those KPIs that uh, people are looking for, they're not necessarily always revenue based. Like, there's that thing about the gold. What was it like twelve percent rule where it's like twelve percent each month on month on month where the revenue is increasing, and it's more actually active users that they're looking for. Sorry. So one of one of the companies I started was a technically a social media company. It was for polling, um, and we talked to investors, and we had really great user retention. You know, we had a. Uh, in a month, we had people who were daily active users for 50% of the time. The kind of stuff that VCs would go, whoa. But no one, can, no one took us seriously because we were social media and we, weren't, we didn't have a plan to monetize those customers. Maybe we were talking to the wrong investors, but um, that was a problem. Um, and, you know, I think if you are a, a, a business that um, has an end game to produce revenue from users, that, that either subscription service or bolt-ons, you know, try and get metrics for that as fast as possible. Because as soon as you say you're making money and you've got a clear route to doing that, people take you a hell of a lot more seriously than if you say, well, I've got loads of users that repeat and they love me. Then the question that every investor is going to ask you at that stage is, well, how do you know they're going to pay for you? And you can go, I've done this survey, like it makes sense. Or I've, I've got this customer that will pay for ads, but it doesn't work as well as you know, I've got people subscribing. So try and try and get people to pay for your products as early as possible. Actually, a point that I learned from my own startup experience as well, 
giving people the product for free is very good at an early stage, but it makes people devalue what they're using, full stop, from my experience. Um, I would heavily consider, even if you think it's a really hard sell, monetizing your product immediately. Um, because people, not only that, if you convince one person to use it, they'll continue using it um, because they pay for it. It's like behavioral economics. <laughs> um, because they pay for it, they'll use it. Because they, they use it regularly, they'll become an evangelical customer. If you don't pay for, if you give something someone for free, they don't value it and they don't use it properly. So uh, that's a general advice for startups from my experience. If you have the ability to monetize it and that's your plan all along, try and do it as early as possible. If you sell it out for 50p, you know, are people really going to value you spending 50p kind of thing? Um, you know, people aren't going to care. Any, any investor that cares about your bottom line revenue figure at, at MVP stage uh, or at least an early stage is not getting the point. The point is, can you convince users to use your product? And if I give you 100k, have you got a good strategy to go to market to get how many users? What's your cost per acquisition? You know, stuff like that. That's what investors care about. So the, what are the common pitfalls um, that a, a business will face um, once they get their investment, like once they kind of, um, once they are success, successful on Cedars, what's the uh, pitfalls they'll face? Um, I mean, they, once you're successful on Cedars, you've got responsibility all of a sudden because you've got you know, 200 investors that back your products and business idea. And I guess using them and keeping them on side is incredibly important because they can be the foundation for your future raises. Um, just as a background, we give all investment investors preemption rights which in uh, very basic terms means that um, let's say I've, uh, I bought 1% of the business at first round and then you raise a second round and uh, you 3x your valuation. I'm able to maintain my 1% of the business and you can't stop me, but I have to pay for the shares at the new price. So what that means, I think it's good for founders because what that means is you get pre-commitment towards your next round before you've even started the round because you've got people following on, using, taking up their preemption rights. Um, that that is really important. You've got to keep these guys on side because you know once they once you get to the next round, you know are they going to take up their preemption rights? You could start with 50k pre-committed before you've even started the round, which is just so useful rather than having to go out to other people as, a, as an example. So yeah, keeping them on side is super important. I think the best way to do that is you have to execute on your plan. Um, quite a few crowdfunding businesses get flack for not executing on their plans, and again, to be honest, we don't vet them. You know, it's not our job to say, do we think you as an entrepreneur are going to execute on the plan you've said you're going to do in the next year, unfortunately. A lot of entrepreneurs say, oh, I can totally do this. And we'll say, we don't really believe you. But if you say you can do this, convince people, fine, go ahead. And then they don't hit their targets and they lose everything because all the investors just go, well, you've not done what you've said you're going to do. I'm not going to follow on. And then second round, they're really struggling to raise capital. And of course, if you've not hit your targets, you're probably not profitable. So you're looking at a winding up. Um, so yeah, pick modest targets, hit them, and keep your investors happy. I think are the two most important things. Under promise, over deliver. I, I, interesting. I actually had a business I invested in. That I got a really disappointing update from about uh, in January. Yeah, I so for for, for uh, I invest in businesses, um, uh, the businesses that I I uh, I run as well. Every business that I've ever raised for, I've invested in, even if it's twenty quid. Um, so this business, I invested a massive sum of forty five pounds. Um, and uh, when they uh, they they sent a, a well, unfortunately a disappointing update, which is basically like we've not hit our targets. Um, we're going to have to um, 
you know, one of us is taking a, a part-time job in order to kind of take a haircut and salary. But here's our strategy to move on. And the support the investors gave to that was super crucial. Because if you update your investors and you say things like, things are not going so well, but, you know, help, help, help us guys. I'm being honest and upfront and transparent with you. It provides a good attitude. The problem lies in which you, you just don't deliver any bad news because you think it's going to annoy people. Um, and no, I, I thought it was a good update. I mean, look, I, uh, you know, clearly the investment's not going very well, but I, I'm glad they said that because I feel better about the business. Kind of Almost thing. like giving like uh, increasing transparency between the investors, the business, yourself, what's happening, what's going on, rather than Joe Oh, everything's fine. Like, you know, you just need of... to look like a good, trustworthy person. That's my best advice. Like, if you're trustworthy and you do things the right way, then people will really respect you because everyone knows you've got a really impossible task. Starting a business, you know, 95% of startups, uh, what is it, 19%, 95% fail. I keep hearing that stat. Um, uh, but either way, every, yeah, 90, yeah, we'll be optimistic. Um, but yeah, look, I, just be trustworthy and honest and people will really, really care about you and help you along the way. Um, and yeah, don't, don't overpromise. So on that note, you've, you've mentioned it a couple of times in your answers that you yourself were a founder of two tech startups. Um, one was called Wagglet, which was a polling app, um, and also Buzzer Feedback, which is a customer insight tool. Um, both of those businesses are, are no longer around. What did you learn from um, essentially those failings as startups, as businesses, um, and how has it helped you uh, develop yourself as an uh, entrepreneur? Um, there's one, I, I, I'll survey the room again. Um, put your hand up if you're a, a tech guy that does the kind of coding for the business that's three okay well most of you are not that's interesting okay well um, after this course maybe yeah give us like six more weeks we'll be probably all right oh, okay so a lot of you are on the program as well um no <laughs> oh, anyway whatever i so i i actually learned a really really useful fact about so i'm not a tech founder myself um i don't have tech expertise and my founder, my co-founder when I started uh, Wagglet Social Polling App um, was not a tech founder either. We actually raised a small, very small friends and family round and hired uh, a coder. So we paid him originally in, in order to try and you know, get to the level where give him equity. Um, long story cut short, uh, the paying relationship at the beginning never worked out because we didn't trust him. He didn't trust us because he didn't have the equity in the business. We didn't really know what we were doing because he was producing this work and we were just not quite sure whether it was right or not or they were doing the right thing. Um, so what made a, you pick him in the first place, though, based on... The... He was a friend of a friend um, who gave us a good character reference and we met him and he seemed like a, a good guy. I mean, I still think he is, but he did... Um, you know, the bottom line is we made mistakes there in which we didn't trust the tech founder, really, from the very beginning. And my, my co-founder was very product-focused which meant that he didn't even have the creativity in the business. So to be honest, our management of him as, a, as an employee of the business, first, he shouldn't have been an employee, he should have been a co-founder. And secondly, um, our management of him was not conducive to a good working relationship. I think if all of you are building tech products, which I assume you are, um, just just be, you know, make sure the relationship is right. When we founded Buzzer, so we actually, a Buzzer was a... Um, it's a, it's a data insight app for restaurants. So it was getting feedback from restaurant owners. We paid the initial coder for Wagalit to do the MVP for that. And we actually used the code that we used for Wagalit for Buzzer. So we 
built it on an absolute shoestring because it was like a pivot in it was basically the most enormous pivot you've ever seen in the business because we were going from a b2c social app to a b2b um uh polling app uh anyway um we paid him a little bit for the mvp and then we we said you know this relationship's not working by and hired somebody that could manage coders and freelancers that was the best decision we ever made we made him a co-founder equal share in the business 33 percent each at the beginning me my co-founder and the tech guy immediately what happened he was so so into the products he really helped with things we built what was actually an awesome product you know, Buzzer, I still see as a relative success because, you know, we, we were revenue-making company when I left. Uh, we Like I said, we we deliberately collapsed the 70K seed round in order to get on an accelerator that gave us money. We turned down other businesses like Startup Bootcamp for it. So we'd, we'd done well and we'd impressed people. Um, uh, I, I left because I, I, I was young and I, I really felt that I just wasn't ready to be an entrepreneur and I needed to step back and start a new business later. And I knew I had to saddle up for three or four years of earning no money and literally going to events to, to eat pizza. Um, <laughs> I honestly, true story, I used to do that. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I, I, I need to, um, you, you know, the, I think the, the main advice I would give to people in this room that I think is really useful is respect your tech co-founder enough to give your, that co-founder equity, but work hard to work whether you're going to, you know, it's going to be right to work with them or not. And if you've been on the wagon, you know, I, th I think I think you mentioned earlier when we were chatting, like uh, you're you're um, uh, you want to you want to use this expertise to actually manage coders. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be a coder, but you know, just to even know what they're doing, this kind of like magic, which uh, to people who don't have the knowledge, just seems like kind of you know just out you know otherworldly. Yeah, I just want to understand it more. That that's exactly what works. You know, and and you know, if you've been on this and you're thinking about that, then you know, it works uh, as long as you know enough about it. You will know enough about who the right tech person is to trust and get on with the business and work out. And, and don't be afraid to hand over equity because without equity, you know, you've not really got money at this stage. So nothing is going to influence them much to really kind of add value to the business. That's really interesting. So the word entrepreneur, tech startup, right, it's becoming so cool, like in the last sort of five to 10 years. It's probably the reason I'm on the wagon. Like, what is it like... What have you seen in the tech industry change in your experience in the last sort of five years working at Cedars? Um, where's it going? And, and I, I guess really kind of like, what is the attitude towards um, you know, the word entrepreneurship now? I'd like to say the bullshit stopped, but I don't <laughs> think it has. <laughs> um, what do you mean by that, the bullshit? Like... I think there are a lot of people who glorify being a founder and a creator and, um, uh, yeah. and, and will quite revel in the fact that they call themselves that without actually hitting kind of metrics and really focusing on making this a business. Um, and it's come out of the Facebook age, really, of, you know, people have watched the social network and want to be an entrepreneur because, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I think, I think that that unfortunately still exists to an extent. And I do meet a lot of people on a daily basis who um, I, re I really think are, are not focused on what they should be, which is, building a great product using users you know so many people build a you know entre an entrepreneur to use your definition right an entrepreneur is not an entrepreneur if they build a product just for themselves and don't talk to anyone about it and just kind of code in their room you know that is not an entrepreneur an entrepreneur is someone that goes out and 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 builds a really crappy product knows it's awful 
and then goes and shows all their friends and iterates on it based on feedback and shows their customer and talks to their customer and stuff like that. And actually, there are so few people that get this right at a very early stage. Again, using my example of my two businesses, in one business, I got that very wrong. In one business, I got very right. I didn't tell you why I uh, waggle at the polling app. I actually, it actually turned into a stage where I was getting 3,000 downloads a week which was like my dream. It was like everything had come true. The issue was, it was all people misusing my product <laughs> because I hadn't interviewed my user well enough. Misusing my product to the extent it was basically school kids bullying each other. That's how bad it got. Like it was pretty, you know, it was not good. I didn't want to be that guy, you know, that facilitated bullying for school kids. But they'd, they'd taken my product that was designed to, to poll people to say like, which shoe should I wear today? You know, take a picture and, and said, you know, Honestly, stuff like, you know, who's the biggest bitch in school and stuff like that. And I was like, you know, if I'd surveyed, if I'd surveyed my users well enough at the beginning, I'd be like, I know this could be used for that and I will protect against that happening. But I didn't. And as a consequence, the name got tarnished. Everyone viewed Waggle as not an app to, you know, help you make everyday decisions in your local area, but how to take the piss out of your friends and... And, and, and that I, so there we go. I was the glorified entrepreneur from the social network that did all this stuff, didn't interview my users, built a product that was way too good at MVP level and didn't send it out. And yeah, guess what? I, it, it kind of failed and it didn't, didn't sort itself out. With Buzzer, learned all of that, built a product off an absolute shoestring. I, in fact, I, we got onto an accelerator early on and this was the impetus for me to actually become an entrepreneur because they were like, go out and, and prove to me that 150 restaurant owners want your product. And I, I remember going back and walking back to the office with my co-founder being like, how the hell are we gonna do that? And we built up a strategy, like literally we walked into restaurants for, for two weeks running and went to talk to the manager and just interviewed them. If you had never read the mum test, by the way, read it because it, it helps you understand how to ask these questions. Um, uh, so the idea is that um, your mum will always tell you she loves you unconditionally. Um, even if you know you, you say, oh, I've, I've created this. I don't know. It, it's a it's a it's an arm that allows me to drink my beer. You know, obviously that's a terrible idea. And your mum will go, oh, that's lovely, darling. It's brilliant. You're going to get so many customers. Uh, that's not useful. The way you avoid the mum test is don't tell the person you're surveying what your idea is. You've got to survey them without them being able to guess what you're making, because then you're going to find out honest answers and you're going to weed out the people that are just saying nice things to be nice. Um, and that's how you find out if people want your product or not. So they made us read that. They went out and they said, we'll, we'll take you on our program if you, can, if you can get these responses that show people want your product. We did. And you know what? I, it failed because I, you know, I stepped back. I, I didn't know anything about the restaurant industry. My co-founder ended up you know, falling out of love with the product, and he, he ended up working in another tech startup as well. Um, but we, you know, our competitor at the time who we toe-to-toe -to -toe with is just raise a million pounds. But the idea was solid and the business model was solid and I still know that today. But, you know, I stepped aside because I wasn't the right person to execute on it. I still believe that. Um, but coming back to my original point, because I babbled on about that kind of stuff. Yeah, entrepreneur is someone that will hustle to the extent that they will go out and actually survey their users and ask what's right and wrong about their products and do that stuff. Not the guy that codes in their room a product they love and, and, and makes it beautiful and Oh, you, you see the, has everyone seen that Fire Festival documentary on Netflix? Oh, yeah. uh, that, that guy calls himself an entrepreneur. Oh, he's the opposite of an entrepreneur. Um, I mean, yeah, he's a hustler. He's very good at getting people, but he's a hustler in like the sense one of the term. I'm going to swindle people and yeah. make people believe something doesn't exist. Um, 
that's, that's the kind of level you need to avoid. And the, the actual entrepreneur is the guy that has a laser focus on their product, goes out, talks to their users, and will go out and, you know, take, take, take hits and use it as a way to improve rather than, you know, keep lying. <laughs> um, you kind of touched on it there a little bit, but if you could give one piece of advice for the people in the crowd now that uh, might be at MVP stage, idea stage, one piece of advice in 15 words or less. Oh, crap, I'm good. I, I, you know what, I'm about the 15 words. Okay, I'm try. Short. Sub 20, um, I'll let you off. Oh gosh, even then. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's got to say whatever you want. Right. Uh, don't, don't, don't raise money until you, you're really ready for it in the, in the sense that you've got metrics. Uh, you know that you're going to use that money wisely. You're not just convincing investors you are because there's a big difference there. It's very easy to convince people you use money wisely, but whether you actually do it or not, uh, you know, you've got to know you're going to execute on that um, and you really need it. Uh, I meet too many businesses every day that are raising money they don't need. Um, and I think that's the easiest way to kill your startup early. You know, delay the time to, until you do it, basically. Thanks for listening to Lewagon Live. Tune in next week for another episode. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe by hitting the subscribe button.